were written by Luke in the same breath, as it were, so I believe, as the first end of the first volume and the beginning of the second volume of, uh, um, of, of that he wrote. But uh, we've got them separated in our Bibles by something rather good called John's Gospel. But we're not looking at John's Gospel today. So, well, have you ever been going in one direction only to find yourself being taken off suddenly and completely in a new direction that you were not expecting? This can happen in real road journeys. Your road is going there from A to B, and suddenly the road is closed. You can't get to B. You suddenly have to go off in the opposite direction towards somewhere like C. And meanwhile, your GPS system is telling you, turn back, turn back, do a U-turn. It's so frustrating when that happens. The road is closed. You can't get where you want to go. You're going in the wrong direction, it feels. Or you're driving along confidently, as I was, towards downtown Pittsburgh, when suddenly, with no opportunity for an exit, the highway takes a severe 120-degree bend back to the right, and you're spun off for several miles across the river, and you're looking at downtown Pittsburgh in your rear, mir- <laughs> rear mirror. Uh, this is what happens on some American roads. Pittsburgh is one of the more confusing cities. Definitely. <laughs> it certainly is. How many bridges in Pittsburgh? It can happen to you in the journey of life. In your career or your workplace, you think your future is settled for a few years, and you suddenly find your job, you being radically changed or removed. Or in your relationships, your family life, there's things like, like they're going in a nice settled direction, and suddenly it's all changed, and you no longer know where you are. Life is full of these changes, which we don't plan, which leave us feeling insecure and disorientated. Possibly annoyed with other people, possibly annoyed with God himself. Well, we're going to be looking today at some people in the Bible who were going through a dramatic turnaround. Life would never be the same again for them. And we're going to see how Jesus enabled them to turn the corner, to get reorientated, and to set out in a new direction with a new confidence in his care and his providence. Yes, I'm referring, of course, to the disciples who went up to Jerusalem for Passover with some expectations but found themselves being overtaken by world-changing events beyond their control and being propelled out from Jerusalem after Pentecost with a whole new agenda for their lives. The resurrection of Jesus is the biggest turnaround in all of human history. A crucified man, truly dead, now eating food and smiling with his friends, vibrantly alive. And the people who were close up to that turnaround were themselves turned around and spun off in a whole new direction. And the same can and does happen today whenever anyone gets up close to this Jesus. He can turn them around from death to life. From lying flat in sin to standing upright in righteousness. Being lost and confused, being found and given a whole new direction from being insecure to being profoundly secure. And I hope that may already be something of your experience and that today, as we look at the disciples being turned around by Jesus, we will all again feel fresh encouragement to cope with our own turnarounds in life. We're going to be looking at this season of reorientation for the disciples through the eyes of Luke, because the writer of Luke's Gospel seems to have been particularly aware of the significance of this unique season in the disciples' lives. Because he's also the writer of the book of Acts, he alone, of the four gospel writers, gives us a complete sequence from Good Friday through Easter, through the 40 days of resurrection appearances, 
leading up to Ascension Day, and then Pentecost. This, of course, proves only that Luke was a very good Anglican. <laughs> but it also means that by putting Luke 23 to 24 alongside Acts 1 and 2, we can follow the disciples throughout this dramatic season. And this, one, this explains why we've done the very un-Anglican thing today of having Luke 24 and the start of Acts 1 read together as our gospel reading. Probably the first time in 500 years of Anglican history <laughs> Luke's text has been allowed to, be, to have the flow that he originally gave to it. But then I always sense that the incarnation in Tallahassee was at the cutting edge of churches. <laughs> Joking apart, however, we do get the opportunity to examine the hinge point of Luke's overall narrative as he relates these events which were, with hindsight, truly the hinge point of all human history. Luke has constructed his two-volume work with this hinge point very much intentionally at its centre. Luke's gospel goes up into Jerusalem, towards Jerusalem. The book of Acts then goes out from Jerusalem through Samaria to the ends of the earth. There is the heart of his two-volume work, a crossover, a hinge point. And at the centre of the hinge point is the cross. And that is the ultimate hinge point of all human history. It will turn us around when we get close to the cross. So let's see how the disciples get on in this season of turnaround. Acts 1-3, I repeat. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. We've got a season here of 40 days and multiple, he says, many resurrection appearances. I'm going to highlight the six that we are fairly clear that there were, uh, which were group appearances, Jesus appearing to the disciples as a group. Let's run them through quite quickly and imagine these events. Number one is Easter Sunday night. In the upper room in Jerusalem, described there, back in Luke 24, when the 11 disciples are there, joined by the two from Emmaus, they're disbelieving for joy because suddenly here is Jesus walking, appearing through locked doors, and there he is in their midst, and he's eating some fish in their presence. <gasps> Eight days later, resurrection appearance number two, described in John chapter 20. Well, I said 11 disciples, actually John, uh, Thomas hadn't been there, so maybe it was 10 on that occasion. Thomas is now with them. Uh, they're in the house again, says John chapter 20, says somewhere in Jerusalem. Thomas is there. Maybe you've seen some of those paintings as he points his finger towards Jesus. Caravaggio's great painting, I think. And does he actually ever touch Jesus? We don't know. Or did he get that close and then he thought, I don't need to. This is real. Mm -hmm. But then he did touch. And then immediately Jesus said, blessed are those who don't have to touch and don't have to see, but believe. Mm -hmm. What we're getting in these first two resurrection appearances is themes of assurance and adoration. My Lord and my God, says Thomas. Resurrection appearance number three. Probably two weeks later, we're back up in Galilee, journeying of four or five days, walking up from Jerusalem to Galilee. They're back there, perhaps with their family and friends. They're reconnecting with their work life a little bit. They go fishing for the night. Oh dear, so no fish at that night. No fish at all. It brings back memories of something that happened three years before when something happened like this before. Uh, but there's someone on the shoreline this time. And who is it? Peter realises, takes off his clothes and dives into the water uh, and, and goes there to, uh, to see Jesus. 
And who is Jesus on this occasion? He is the happiest man in the world. He's the risen Lord. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus is supremely happy. He's the most happy man in the world. You've anointed him with oil, the part of his companions, Hebrews 1.8. The oil of joy, the oil of gladness. And it's a happy time. And it's barbecue time. And it's cookout time. And it's breakfast time. And it's fish being cooked. Ah, the smell of the fish. Uh, and it's joyful time because we've got 153 fish uh, that we hadn't thought we were going to have a few moments ago. And there they are, they've poured up onto the shore. And I think Jesus got a twinkle in his eye. Yeah, you go and count those fish, you know. <laughs> How many are there? It's fun, it's laughter, it's friendship, it's restoration, it's love, it's reunion. Mm. And you know, this is the time when, in the presence of a charcoal fire, by which Jesus, Peter had denied Jesus three times. Mm. So Jesus asked Peter three times. That smell still in his nostrils. Oh, this is amazing. This is amazing. This is scenes <coughs> of reunion and restoration with a risen, joyful Lord. Episode number four, we're also up in Galilee. It's the mountain in Galilee described in Matthew 28, perhaps alluded to in 1 Corinthians 15 as well. 500 people, we read on one occasion, saw the risen Jesus. I was filming there in March this year, and we found what we eventually called Clucas Mountain, for a certain reason. <laughs> and we were there. Uh, uh, it's just a beautiful 360-degree uh, panorama of Galilee in the early morning on this mountain, which had mammoth rock about this size. It's quite painful to camber over to get to the top. Breathtaking view. Well, somewhere near there, on a mountain near there, the, the mountain that Jesus had appointed for them, you read in Matthew 28, they saw him, and some worshipped Although some doubted. And this is the occasion of the Great Commission. Go therefore to all nations, baptizing. What's this? It's the resurrection appearance with themes of worship and witness. Number five, back in Jerusalem. <coughs> now we get back to our text in Acts 1, verse 4. And while staying with them, although in my version it had eating with them, that's the NIV, it's word, isn't it? Um, the. Um, Yes, we slight distance there. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. So here we have now uh, Jesus spending time with, either eating or just staying with them. That this is time of extended friendship and fellowship. Now, when Jesus stays with you, he doesn't stay just for 45 seconds. Time enough to read verse 4 and 5. You heard from me from the. Now, back, and we got together. He's staying with them. Or, in one version, he's eating with them, and a meal takes an hour or two. Of extended conversation, not just the two verses we have recorded. Those of you who've seen that modern film Risen, which I saw last year, was a really good portrait of a friendly way in which Jesus, the risen Jesus, uh, spent time with his disciples. Friendship and fellowship are themes in this meeting. And then finally, number six is uh, there in verse six. So when they had come together or gathered together in the NIV, they asked him. And uh, this seems to be yet another time, and it's outdoors, and they're standing around Jesus, and he's probably teaching them. By the way, in those days, those who were listening had to stand, and those who were teaching them were sitting. Unfortunately, it's been reversed recently. But anyway, so, um, so Jesus just around him, listening to him. And they've got one answered question. Big question. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he kind of deflects it and says, timings, you know, that's, you know even I don't have the authority of that. By the Father's own authority, our timing is set in salvation history. Don't ask any more questions after that. 
uh, <laughs> you've, you've had your answer, don't ask anymore. But he then goes on and says, you will receive power when you are my witnesses. So this becomes a theme, themes of power and proclamation as they go out with the gospel. But I really enjoy just going through those six group appearances of the risen Jesus. I've never had a chance to do that in a sermon before, and I don't know why it doesn't happen often. But it's great just to go through those, I think, and sense that. What have we been doing for the group and through each of those? We know there were other individual appearances to Simon Peter, to Mary, to James, the Lord's brother. I was wondering this morning, did Jesus also have a private one-to-one with his mother, the Virgin Mary? Didn't seem entirely appropriate. There may have been some other individual appearances not recorded for us. But these that seem to be the six main group ones that are recorded. He presented himself and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. So Easter was not just a day, but a season. Not just a one-off, nor a nine-day wonder, but a 40-day extravaganza of encounter and joy. And it was a season for the disciples of gradual reorientation. They needed more than one hit to get this right. They needed these sequences of meetings, I think, with Jesus to get the process of reorientation because they were so shell-shocked by what they were being presented with. But as a result of that, they were turned around from despair to hope, from grief to joy, from confusion to intentional discipleship, from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Let's now dig a little bit deeper into what Jesus was doing. I'm going to do so under three headings, and we'll spend most of our time on the first one. What was Jesus teaching them? Later we'll have, what was he promising? What was he commanding? But what was he teaching them? Three or four things under this heading. What was Jesus teaching them in this season of reorientation? Must have been an amazing season to be a pupil in the school of Jesus. So often in our modern culture, we're used to challenging the views and the authorities of our teachers and leaders. What does he know about the subject? Why should I listen to her, of all people? So we give only 50% of our attention at best. But if the person in front of the classroom is just back from the dead, you listen up. <laughs> if he's got crucifixion marks in his, in his wrists, you take note. If, because he's recently been vindicated by God as the risen Lord of history, you can see that he does have the authority, a unique authority, to speak of time and eternity and the things of God. And what does he teach? Let's listen in. First, the reality of the resurrection. Jesus teaches you, just by standing there in your midst, the truth of the resurrection. <laughs> this is the starting point. And this resurrection tells us about who Jesus really is, the risen Lord, the Son of God. There's great readings, which I'm not preaching on today, from Daniel and from Psalm 110. The glorious Son of Man, and the one who sits at the Father's right hand. I said to my, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Great pictures and prophecies in the Old Testament um, about Jesus, the unique Son of Man, exalted at the Father's right hand. This is what the resurrection is teaching us about. It teaches us the, res- the reality of God, too. His power in the world is able to make a body do this. That's quite good. And he did it for Jesus. He's got power in his world. God is not floating away somewhere, distant, unable to work in his world. No, he can bring Jesus back from the dead, and he did it. And it's showing us the power of Jesus, of God, the Father, and his intention to renew the world, to transform the world with his resurrection power. Just think how, they, how much there must have been in that one sentence, Luke 24, verse 36, when Jesus stood in the room and just said, 
Peace be with you. Shalom. <laughs> and then carries on. Don't doubt. Don't be doubting. It's me. Verse 39. It is I myself. I love that. Yes, it really is me. The children hear them like that. Yes, it's him. <laughs> the risen Jesus is inevitably teaching about himself as the risen Lord. We can't miss that, uh, even though he doesn't say, I am the risen Lord. But uh, he is. And he's just presenting himself. Acts 1 3. He's presenting himself as alive, as the risen Lord. First thing he's teaching is about himself as risen, the reality of the resurrection. Secondly, he's teaching also about the cross. He goes on to explain the cross and what followed the cross, and was followed by the resurrection, what it has achieved. Look with me at the great verses in Luke 24, 46 and 47. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus takes them back to Good Friday and the apparent tragedy and disaster that they'd been through three days before, talking about how the Christ should suffer, and says that this event was a necessary part of the divine plan, because it had been written about in the Old Testament, it had been predicted, thus it is written, which meant there was now a new necessity, a necessity for us to repent. But if we do so, this would lead equally necessarily in God's provision to our forgiveness. Ah, I love that. The cross was necessary, but now it is necessary that God forgive us when we repent of our sins. Mm. There's some biblical logic to, to chew on. Ah. Jesus' death and resurrection had achieved God's great act of salvation, his great rescue operation. Sin and evil have been overcome. God's mercy have triumphed. So Jesus was teaching from the get-go, from Easter Sunday, about 8 o'clock in the evening, that his death was all to do with our sins. It was an act of atonement, a sacrifice, an act of heroic love and obedience, which had the goal of securing the removal of our sins such that we could be forgiven in God's sight. Jesus didn't die for no purpose at all. He died with one purpose, to bring about forgiveness of sins for you and for me. Praise be to Jesus. Yeah. You imagine going through the cross, by the way. It's not much fun. And he did that for you and for me. To get forgiveness of sins, to be freely available from his heavenly Father for you and for me. That's right. I'm not going to debate today the precise mechanism by which that happened, but just notice from the get-go in the New Testament, cross is linked with the forgiveness of sins. You'll never find it being talked about without that connection. Jesus died for our sins. Even though maybe more detail to get into. So Jesus taught the reality of the resurrection. He taught the effectiveness. Notice that word. The effectiveness of the cross. It was a work which achieved something. Our forgiveness. It's available through hope you ask this Jesus for that forgiveness which he has won and achieved for you. It's yours. Thirdly, he taught them the necessity of worldwide mission. We'll come back to this a bit more later, but this message of forgiveness will be preached, he says here in these verses, to all nations. Again, he's saying this had been predicted in the Old Testament. The Gentiles, the non-Jews, would now be included in God's plan, and the disciples would have a key role within that as his witnesses. And 
fourthly, moving on to Acts chapter 1, so please turn over the page. And fourth theme of what he's teaching is God's kingdom. And we see that at the end of verse 3. He appeared to them during 40 days. And what was he speaking about? He was speaking about the kingdom of God. And that is actually his chief topic of conversation, it seems. Now, maybe this is a catch-all phrase for Jesus' general sort of teaching curriculum, but it's probably a little bit more specific than that. After all, what was Jesus' main and central and first topic when he spoke about in Galilee? The kingdom of God is at hand. And what were many of his parables about? The parables of the kingdom, that's what he was teaching. The kingdom of God. But now that the risen Jesus is at the front of the classroom, in his teaching it in a bit more detail, we realize there's a bit new sharpness of focus here. Because now it's clear it's the risen, vindicated Jesus is evidently the king in this kingdom of God. God has appointed him as Lord and Christ. He is the anointed Messiah and king in the kingdom of God. Ah, so that stops the kingdom of God being some woolly idea about the kingdom of God and the brotherhood of man, or something like that, <laughs> and turns it into something which is vitally important, that the kingdom of God is all about the reign of King Jesus and bringing other people under the reign of King Jesus. Now that sounds rather a bit of focus to me. <laughs> yeah? Have you come under the reign of King Jesus? And is, is um, Incarnation Tallahassee extending the reign of King Jesus? You proclaim his king in your worship, you bring people in that they can come under his good reign and thus come into the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God spreads out from Jerusalem, via Europe, eventually comes to America, and eventually gets to Tallahassee. Isn't that great? <laughs> so the kingdom of God expands as the rule of Jesus is received in people's hearts. There's a fifth thing, and this is a bit more of a conjecture. That was talking about um, the, the importance of kingship of Jesus, the kingdom of God. Fifth thing, uh, I wonder if, though we cannot be certain, whether Jesus also took this opportunity to clarify his teaching about his eventual return at the ultimate end of human history. Now, this is speculation. But only now that the disciples, because of the resurrection, could begin to see the significance of his first coming, could they be expected to comprehend any talk about his second coming. I think if Jesus was a good psychologist, and he was, he would know that they might need this season post-resurrection to understand the next phase, which before that would have been doubly confusing because they hadn't gone through the first phase. <laughs> yeah? So maybe this is a good season for a review of what's happened and a bit of preview for what still lies in the future. So quite possibly Jesus went back through his earlier parables of the sheep and the goats, the thief in the night, and explained now what those parables meant, giving rise to what we now find in the epistles, for example, 1 Thessalonians. And there may be a tiny hint of this in Acts 1, 6-7, when Jesus and his disciples get into discussion about times and dates. Uh, they say that, you know, Lord, is this the time when? They're asking a time question, a chronology question. Perhaps the disciples ask their question in verse 6 about the timing of the restoration of Israel, precisely because Jesus had been talking about other key events in the future, but sadly, he hadn't gone and mentioned this key event, which was the very one that they were most interested in. We're not interested in your end time coming. We want to know about the restoration of Israel. We want a clear timetable. You're raised from the dead. Now we want the restoration of Israel. And then, okay, okay we'll have the parousia whenever in the future. 
And he just in the back, he's like, okay. Father only knows timelines. You know, Jesus said he couldn't even know the end of the perusing time. The son of the son didn't know. So Jesus pushes all back into the long grass and says, the Father only knows. I think he also is correcting some of our ideas about the restoration of Israel, but that's another story. But now, I just want to bring up the point, they're interested in the future. And I think it's because he's been teaching a little bit about the perusia at the end of time. So that's pure conjecture. Um, yeah. Finish that. that I mean, point. that's what the angels tell him in a couple of verses. You know? uh, that's right. <laughs> that's true. The angels give the, the, the postlude to, um, to uh, Jesus' teaching at the epilogue. Okay. So, um, be that as it may, let's move on more briefly to my two other points. What was Jesus promising? That was what was Jesus teaching. But now, what is he promising? Here, there's just lovely one answer. He's promising them power. There it is. We get it three times in this in our readings today. Luke 24, 49, back in Luke's gospel. And behold, I'm sending the promise my father to stay in the city till you're clothed with power from on high. Acts 1, 45 talks about being baptized with the Holy Spirit, unlike John baptizing with water. And then Acts 1, 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now, there are other things which Jesus does promise us. We know that's in the Gospels, the other Gospels. Matthew 28, he promises, I will with you forevermore, his presence. And we saw in John 21 how he's promising restoration and love. But Luke focuses here on his promised gift of power. Promised gift of power. Something new is about to be unleashed upon the disciples. Something promised by God the Father in the Old Testament. Joel or Ezekiel, not yet fully revealed. Something promised even by John the Baptist, who knew that his baptism was only with water, but Jesus, his cousin, baptized with the Holy Spirit. Something which would transform the fearful disciples who denied him and run over the man of others fleeing, would uh, be turned into unashamed apostles, boldly proclaiming the good news. The word for power, as we know, is dunamis, and so they were about to receive something dynamic. A stick of dynamite was about to be placed in the streets of Jerusalem, and it's going to have an explosive effect all over the world to the ends of the earth. This was Jesus preparing them in advance for the day of Pentecost, which will be described in Acts chapter 2, in which the worldwide church will be celebrating in two weeks' time. But for now, let's simply just ask the question, perhaps in preparation for two weeks' time, are we willing and able to receive this gift from the Father? Do we want our lives to be operated solely on our power and strength? Or we are, are we open to the power and the presence of God's Holy Spirit in our lives? A good question to ask yourself as you prepare to celebrate Pentecost. And finally, let's just close by noting what Jesus was commanding them. Here again, Luke gives us only one answer. You will be my witness. There's the command. Yes, he also gave them a short-term instruction to stay in the city till the Spirit came, but the big commandment, seen both in Luke 24 and Acts 1, is be my witnesses. You've seen what I've done, you've been eyewitnesses, now you must testify about what I've done, you must be speaking witnesses. Seen, now they must speak. That's what an eyewitness does. Eyewitness sees and then testifies. That's what they've got to do. The risen Jesus has authority, you see, not just to teach, not just to promise, but also to command or instruct. In 
Note Luke's language here in Acts 1 2. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, Jesus gave them some commands. And the big one here is to be his witnesses. They must testify to what they're seeing. So as we close, I just want you to imagine the emotions of the disciples and the apostles as they are there in that, on that first Easter Sunday. And the risen Jesus suddenly turns up in the midst of them. And suddenly it's disbelief. It's, it's panic. What's going on? Then it turns out that it really is the risen Jesus. And then the emotions go from disbelief to shout and utter it. Joy. Yes, yes, it's Jesus. Jesus, joy, joy, joy. And then he says, um, you know what I've done? There are 11 of you here. Uh, you're going to be witnesses of this to the end of the earth. And suddenly, but panic. We have got to be the ones who will take this message out to the world. Can you see how their emotions going to roll place? <laughs> and he just says, shalom. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, but this is, this is Jesus getting them to turn the corners. But I just want you to sense that panic in the 11, when they suddenly thought, we are the only people who know what's going on here, and we've just been told this message has got to go to all the ends of the earth. We haven't got microphones, we haven't got email, we don't know what to do, we're just going to have to take this message out using our own mouths. Oh. <laughs> and then he said, I'll give you, I'll give you a present. I'll give you, I'll give you something, I'll give you a gift. Now we can embrace the challenge with a sense that it's not our own strength to do. I hope you'll embrace that challenge as you think out of how to bring other people into the knowledge of Jesus. And it could cause all of us to feel absolutely weak at the core. But if God gives us his Holy Spirit, then when we speak to Jesus, we will hear him, see him, meet him, love him, and his kingdom will grow. But it will all be because it's Jesus' power within us enabling the witness and the glory to go to him. My final sentence. So let's be praying today as we face into the turnarounds of our life. I don't know what you're going through, what big turnaround you might be going through, but will we be those who listen with our minds to what Jesus is teaching us? Will we receive into our hearts what Jesus is promising us? And will we then obey with our wills what Jesus is instructing? And as we do so, may we find ourselves, to our surprise and joy, to be being empowered by his spirit and able to go into the future with confidence in his presence and in his life. Can we pray, but would you like to pray for us? Yep. Sure, I'd be happy to. And if the person who's leading prayers of the people could just ready themselves. Um, I was just feeling at the end of your, your talk, Peter, that... Um, that we could uh, that we could ask the Lord's power for witness. Um, somebody asked the question during the roots course a few weeks ago: Are we really devoted to the mission of Christ? To look ourselves in the mirror and ask the Spirit to search us: Are we really devoted to the uh, to the mission of Christ? Maybe we're scared. We're on that valley kind of moment, and the thing that's going to brighten our countenance, the thing that's going to get us excited, the thing that's going to rev us up is asking for the Lord to pour his power on us afresh. The Holy Spirit fell on the apostles more than once in the book of Acts. So let's just, um, let's just put our hands 
like this, and I'm just going to pray for the power of the Holy Spirit, and then we'll continue with the prayers of the people. Shall we stand? Jesus, you talked about sending the promise of the Father. That sounds like a good thing. (laughs) The promise of the Father. Lord, we want that promise to be ours afresh today. Pour out your heavenly spirit. Pour out your holy unction upon us. Come and dwell in our midst. Holy Spirit. Spirit of Jesus. Empower our hearts with courage. Anoint our words to be words of life, salty words of life that season the world. Lord, help us to love in the way that you loved, cruciformed, washing the feet of your friends. Help us to lay our lives down for those around us, Lord. If there's any barrier that's causing us to reject this identity of witnesses, this apostolic identity that's not just for the apostles that you're wanting to to give to all who name the name of Jesus, that we're witnesses, witnesses of your resurrection historically, witnesses of you rising in us, witnesses of your spirit in our life, of your transforming power. Lord, make us witnesses. Lord, help us to search our hearts and ask that question. Are we truly devoted to the mission of King Jesus? Amen.